Welcome to the Walk Podcast of the Thompson Institute, a podcast for students and faculty on your walk across campus as a resource for your spiritual journey. I'm Aaron Badenhop. And I'm Jordan Browning. And we are your hosts and fellow Buckeyes. Dr. Robert D. Silvestro grew up on Long Island. After receiving his bachelor's degree from Purdue, Dr. De Silvestro received his PhD in biochemistry from Texas A&M. He spent the last 29 years as a faculty member at OSU, and now as an emeritus professor, Dr. De Silvestro runs three startup companies based upon his research. Dr. De Silvestro has been invited to many different campuses over the years to speak about the intersection of faith and science and has been influential in many students' lives in helping to reconcile apparent difficulties between scientific research and theory and faith in the God of the Bible. Dr. De Silvestro communicates with reason and logic, yet in a way that is understandable and compelling to those of us that are not experts in biochemistry. Without further ado, our interview with Dr. Robert De Silvestro. Well, Dr. De Silvestro, thank you so much for joining us on the Walk Podcast. And um, I wanted to start by mentioning that I was a student at Ohio State, and I had the chance to hear you lecture as a student. And uh, one of the things that stood out to me about the lectures that I've seen you do is that you tend to incorporate some element of humor in the, the presentation that you give, whether it's like a, a, a comic strip or something like that. Uh, and I'm, I guess I'm just curious, what was your motivation for, uh, for always doing that? It seemed like every time there was some uh, kind of funny little tidbit that you would throw in there. Well, I taught a lot of 8 o'clock classes and had to keep the students awake, so that helped a little <laughs> bit. And it, it does, I think, make students a little more alert when there's at least a little bit of entertainment value in the talks. Also, most of my humor actually had a tie-in with whatever I was talking about, either to help them remember something or to give some understanding. So a lot of students told me they studied my jokes, and I said, well, good, because that was part of the idea. That's great. Well, uh, for those of us that are not as familiar with your work at the university, I think we, I, I would like if you could uh, share with our audience about your work at the university, the various fields of interest, the things that you've uh, researched and classes you've taught, things like that. Yeah, when I was in high school, people were not real proactive about their health, more fatalistic, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Well, I decided even back then that you should be able to somehow be proactive about your health, particularly in the prevention area. So the thought hit me that nutrition could play a role in that. And so I thought, I'd like to study nutrition when I get to college, but I'd also like to work with other aspects of health, including natural product pharmacology, exercise, stress reduction. And so I thought maybe I should have a broader major than just nutrition. So I chose biochemistry because it does hit upon pretty much any area of health I could go into. Also, at that time, there weren't a whole lot of nutrition undergrad majors. There was dietetics, but there wasn't nutrition science. And a lot of the basic nutrition research was actually done in biochemistry departments. 
So I got my undergrad in biochem. I worked a few years, then did my PhD in biochemistry. But when I was looking for jobs, I found that I was a little more marketable in nutrition departments, and that's where I ended up. So I've taught a lot of different kinds of classes. For example, in my job before Ohio State, I taught one class over in biochemistry that was somewhat of a nutritional biochemistry course and then taught some more traditional nutrition courses within the nutrition department. When I came here, I've taught a number of different things. One of the courses I taught was a GC course in nutrition. So it was, we get some nursing majors in there, we get some freshman nutrition majors that take it because it gives them a chance to get nutrition early on in their, in their program. They don't have to wait till they have the prereqs for the more advanced courses. But most of the students in there are GC students, so they're majoring in architecture or business or, or psychology or art. So people ask me sometimes, well, do you like teaching that? Because they're not really your majors. But I really do because it's a chance to teach something about nutrition to people that wouldn't hear anything formal about nutrition in terms of education any other way. So I actually did enjoy teaching that class and taught it for a, a long period of time. I also did a, a lot of other different things, I did research, very diverse. My early research was very basic science, a lot of biochemistry, a lot of physiology, nutrition implications to it, but you know, I also published some papers that were pure biochemistry. For example, I'm credited with identifying the molecular weight of a particular enzyme, which is something biochemists care about. <laughs> so I, I did that kind of stuff. But gradually, my research changed over to being more and more applied and having practical outcomes. In fact, I even did some studies where there was no wet laboratory work whatsoever. It was um, more subjective kind of measurements, things like exercise performance or perception of heartburn symptoms, that type of thing where it wasn't just going into a lab and putting something in a spectrophotometer. It was actually looking at performance and, and perceptions by human beings. And uh, that was something I had to teach myself. It wasn't part of my formal training, but that was interesting uh, learning that. I have enjoyed the fact that I've interacted with students uh, to a very large degree. I've taught some very large classes. I've had students work for me on undergrad projects and independent studies. And then also, uh, of course, grad students. I've had grad students work with me on their masters, on their PhD dissertations. So one nice thing is that when I walk across campus, there's a good chance I'll run into a student I know. And I really like that. Yeah, you've just got done explaining even the how often or how much interaction you've had with students from undergraduate, like freshmen, to it seems like more, um, more individual like research relationships. Uh, being on the professor side of things, I'm even curious. Uh, like, is there something being on that side of the desk, if you will, that you kind of wish? Like, man, I wish students knew what it was like to be a professor, because then they would stop complaining about this. Or if there was something on your side of things, you're like, man, it'd be great if <laughs> they understood what it was like from my perspective. Yeah, I don't know that students understand how many different tasks professors juggle. We do so many different things. We teach classes in terms of lecture classes. We teach students in terms of, as I mentioned, individual studies, mm -hmm. dissertation credits, thesis credits. 
So we do a lot of different kinds of teaching. We do service both within the university, within the community, and then within our professional field. So for example, um, I would do dorm talks with students mm. about nutrition or about just coping with life. Or I would do things with the community, like I gave a talk to cancer survivors about uh, nutraceuticals and cancer prevention. We do that kind of thing. I used to do undergrad academic advising for a while where I help mm. people set up their schedules or deal with scheduling problems. Um, I also, of course, did, did research. Mm. And in my case, I also started commercializing my research and started three startup companies in which OSU has some ownership. So there's just all kinds of things we were doing all the time. So in a typical day, we might have five different things that we're working on, each of which are somewhat independent of the other. So a lot of times a student walks in and they, they don't have a concept that I might actually have something else to do. <laughs> but for the most part, I've tried to tell my students, if you walk in unannounced, particularly my grad students, I told them, no matter how busy I am, unless it's something I just can't lay aside because I've got a time deadline, mm. I want you to always feel free to walk into my office. Mm. But I've even told people in my classes, if you come around when you don't have an appointment, if I am there and I could possibly put aside what I'm doing, I'll be glad to talk to you. But mm. I don't think students realize just how busy we are mm. sometimes with mm. so many different mm. things. We're not just in, it's not just going give in and giving our lecture and then we have nothing else to do the rest of the day. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to talk for a little bit about um, some of the different writing that you have done. I've I read in um, something you wrote about a story where you met uh, another colleague, another scientist, who was surprised to discover that you were a Christian uh, in your field of human nutrition. And... I guess I'm curious how often that has happened for you throughout your career that a, a colleague has been surprised to discover that you're a Christian and and secondly what do you think stands behind that you know why do you think uh, someone like this professor was surprised to find out you're a Christian well there are many scholars who are Christian and there are many who are not the ones that are surprised seem to think that Scientists have one way of looking at the world, and it's based on objective data and facts and rational thinking and logic. And people that think more in quote-unquote religious terms believe in things by faith, which to them means believing without any evidence or in spite of evidence. And that, that's really a false dichotomy. As, as a Christian, I believe my faith is evidence-based. Now, there are aspects of it that still come under the umbrella of, of faith. But even people that don't think of themselves as ever making any decisions by faith actually do. Mm. I bet even this person that talked to me many years ago that I wrote about who said, you know, they, they think of things just in terms of data and science. You know, I bet when they picked their wife, for example, they were, they were married. I bet they didn't do a scientific evaluation mm -hmm. and make the decision purely based on scientific data. I bet there was some I faith involved too, <laughs> where there's some gut feeling involved. And mm -hmm. same thing when you pick friends or, or many other aspects of life, even when you pick what you're majoring, uh, you don't, you can't a hundred percent prove this is the right major for me. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you use some some criteria like what do I like, what am I good at, 
But in the end, there's a, a certain element of faith involved with that too. So I think a lot of scientists think there's this false dichotomy where people that believe believe for no particularly good reason, don't have any evidences on the one hand. And I think they also think that they never make any decisions by faith when actually they do. It's hmm. interesting. Even as a follow-up, why do you think that the scientific community, for those that don't have faith, like are so averse to um, embracing any sort of faith? Why it might be so difficult for them to take, uh, to embrace that, I guess. And then even... For yourself as a scientist with faith, do you feel like you can relate to maybe their difficulty? Yeah, when I was in college, I was raised in a traditional church, but decided there were things about that upbringing I didn't like. And it was it was the beginning of the 70s, you know, just right after the end of the 60s. So everybody was questioning everything. That was mm. the, a time of uh, history where that was going on, and it's continued even to this day. But before that, a lot of people just believed traditional things because they were told it's, tra it's tradition. And that we don't do that quite as much today as we used to, but that was really big when I was very young and then it changed when I was in college. So when I was in college, I started revisiting why do I believe anything and what do I believe in? And I was really impressed with a lot of historical data for Christianity. I thought you could make a pretty strong case based on history that there was a person named Jesus he did miracles, he fulfilled Old Testament prophecies, he was tortured and executed, and then he rose from the dead. Now, that seems like a scientific impossibility that he rose from the dead, but if you look at a lot of the historical evidence, if you don't just rule out that it's impossible, there was a lot of good reason to believe it actually happened. So I was very impressed by that. So I thought, okay, I think this belief in Jesus I had growing up was, is pretty well founded in history, but... I basically said to myself, I believe 90%, but I don't know for sure. I can't get in a time machine and go back and mm -hmm. actually witness everything and make sure that I wasn't being fooled by any of what I was seeing mm -hmm. and say with 100% certainty that I could believe in Christianity. So I finally decided, well, I can believe 90%. I'm going to have to do that other 10% by faith. And so I made that leap. And part of that leap was not... <clears throat> A blind leap because again I had the 90% evidence but also you develop faith in people by something you see that isn't completely out of the blue so for example I have a very close professional friend that I tell my business ideas to and I know she won't repeat them to anybody if I don't want her to how do I know that it's not by the scientific method it's not by a mathematical formula, but yet I have faith in Stacy that she won't repeat what I tell her not to repeat. I got that same kind of faith in Jesus by reading the Gospels. I really liked him, and I said to myself, I really want to put faith in him. Hmm. So I had the 90% science and then the 10% faith that was based on, I just can't explain this, but I have something within my gut that tells me I want to trust this person. Now, I think for scientists, that is a little bit foreign sometimes. They don't like the 10%, even though in reality, they do this all the time. We even do it within science. I mean, there's almost nothing out there we have 100% proof for. And ideas get rocked all the time in the scientific world. And sometimes there's an idea that we have tremendous evidence for, and then some experiment comes along that doesn't seem to support it. 
Now, oftentimes we find out, well, there's a reason it didn't support it. Well, maybe this was flawed or maybe, well, this was true, but this conclusion was not true, even though this data was true. So even in science, we often have to make decisions without knowing everything, but scientists don't like to think of themselves as doing things that way, even though in actuality they do. Yeah, Aaron, I really appreciated um, Dr. DiSilvestro, even just getting to, to hear um, kind of like what it looked like for him uh, as an undergraduate with an interest in nutrition um, to where he's at now, where he's been uh, teaching in the nutrition department and biochemistry now at Ohio State for many years. And uh, appreciate that window into his life and his willingness to share with us. Yeah, I agree. It was It's uh, great to have the chance to interview Dr. DiSilvestro. And uh, stay tuned for our interview as we continue in episode two. If you haven't subscribed yet to The Walk Podcast, now is a great time to do that so that you can automatically receive the latest episode when it's released. Yeah, and if you're a listener that has benefited uh, from this podcast, um, Aaron and I would, would love to encourage you to do two things. First, if you wouldn't mind rating our podcast in the podcast app that you choose, whether the Apple Store or Google Play, that will help others that may be searching for us to find it more easily. Um, we'd even ask, feel free to uh, follow us on Instagram, uh, Twitter, uh, to get updates on new podcasts or different events that we're hosting. And second, we'd ask you to consider sharing your favorite episode with a friend or an acquaintance on campus. If you found this podcast to be helpful, please consider someone else in your life that you think might benefit from discussions just like these that we're having with uh, Dr. DiSilvestro and ask them what they think. Thanks so much for listening to the walk of the Thompson Institute. The personal views presented by the scholars and professors on our podcast do not represent the views of their employer. For upcoming events and for more information, visit the thompsoninstitute.org, a program of crew at Ohio State.